Let's turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 51 through 62 this evening. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. This is the word of the Lord. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray this evening that we would see Jesus Christ through your word preached. We pray that we would have hearts willing to follow Jesus through whatever lies before us in this world. And so we ask you to help us now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage marks the beginning of a major shift in Luke's gospel. Up to this point... Luke has largely focused upon Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Jesus, though he has been rejected in his own hometown, throughout Galilee he has gone about preaching the good news. He's been preaching this good news that the long-anticipated kingdom of God has now come in and through himself. And he's confirmed that message by many miraculous signs. He's been multiplying loaves and fishes. He's been cleansing the lepers. He's healing the paralytics. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. He's calming storms. And he's also established his divine authority by doing the one unthinkable thing to that culture. He's been pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. It looks to all the people in that region as though this great Messiah king, he's just going to need to stroll into Jerusalem and he's just going to have to plop down on David's throne and all of God's purposes for Israel will be fulfilled. But when you get to chapter 9 in Luke's gospel, Jesus starts talking crazy. He looks at his disciples and he says, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. The Son of Man must be killed, and on the third day he will rise. And if anyone wants to follow me into Jerusalem, let him take up his cross and follow me there. So now the time has come for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And the way that Luke describes this shift in Jesus' ministry away from Galilee is here in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. That is, when the, day drew, when the days drew near for Jesus to be crucified and then to resurrect and ascend to heaven, when those days drew near, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What is Luke trying to tell us when he says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem? He's trying to get across to us that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to inherit a kingdom. But that kingdom only comes to him through the death of the cross. And Jesus goes to that cross with resolute purpose. He goes to the cross with laser-like focus. Nothing is going to distract Jesus from going to the cross to die and to redeem his people. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the rest of this passage is what I want us to consider this evening. Those who would follow after Jesus Christ must have the same resoluteness the same purpose, laser-like focus, to follow after Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus had said earlier in chapter 9, if you want to follow me after to Jerusalem, take up your cross. Get ready to die with me if you want to follow me. And of course, we know this side of the cross that actually nobody followed Jesus to the cross. He ended up alone. Even his own apostles and disciples, they all fled from him. But on this side of the cross, we understand that the call to death to self in order to follow Jesus still exists. We must die to ourselves. We must die to this world, all in order to inherit a kingdom with Jesus in the next. So in this passage, we have four different reactions to Jesus that I want us to look at. And all of them teach us something about what it means to follow Jesus in self-denial and what it means for us to set our faces upon him. We are to follow after him with the same resolute purpose with which he took his trek to Jerusalem. So let's look at these four different ways of setting our own faces as we follow Jesus. First, look in verses 52 through 56. Following after Jesus with resolute purpose means that we must embrace Jesus Christ for who he actually is. Now, here's the scene. Jesus is currently in Galilee, and he's now prepared to go to Jerusalem. Galilee is north of Jerusalem. And if you want to take a direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have to go through Samaria. Now that presents a problem if you're a first century Jewish man like Jesus. 
first century Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. Remember when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? He begins speaking to her and he says to her, give me a drink. And she's taken aback. Why? How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John's gospel spells out why she said this to Jesus. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why is this? Why do the Jews and the Samaritans not like each other? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The Samaritans were the descendants of people who were settled in Israel after the exile of the northern kingdom in Old Testament times. And after they were settled there, they intermarried with some Jews who had not been exiled, and they actually ended up adopting much of the Jewish religion. However, the Samaritans came to have their own little twist on Judaism. They believed, and still believe today, there are still adherents of the Samaritan faith today, interestingly enough. They still believe that only the Torah, only the first five books of the Old Testament constitute Holy Scripture. Everything else is out. It is only the Torah that is Holy Scripture to the Samaritans. They even have their own version of the Torah. It's written in a Paleo-Hebrew script. It's very fascinating. But they have their own Torah that has some twists in it that are different from Scripture as we know it. But significantly for this evening, the Samaritans did not believe that Jerusalem was God's holy city. Rather, they believed that Mount Gerizim in Samaria is the place where God should be worshipped. So you can see why they would be at odds with the Jews. The Jews did not think that the Samaritans were really Jews, and the Samaritans didn't like being ostracized by the Jews. That's why the woman in John 4 says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem that we ought to worship. They had a different concept of where God's holy city was. Now, interestingly, the Samaritans, they had a messianic expectation, however, just like the Jews did. They were waiting for the Messiah to come as well. So here's Jesus All of his fame throughout Galilee has gone about and people are chirping and saying, perhaps this is the Messiah. And he's getting ready with resolute face to go to Jerusalem. What would a a Samaritan think about that? He's not the Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem. And we know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to Mount Gerizim. So this explains what's going on here in verses 52 and 53. Jesus sends messengers ahead of him to uh, uh, make way into Samaria to receive him on his way to Jerusalem, but he's not received by the Samaritans because he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. The Samaritans are thinking, this can't be the Messiah. This is an imposter claiming to be the Messiah. If this really was the Messiah, he'd be coming to Mount Gerizim. So we'd better not receive him or show him any hospitality. They did not receive him because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. Now, in verse 54, James and John see this reaction on the part of the Samaritans, and they get angry. Who do these Samaritans think they are to reject Jesus? Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these Samaritans? 
Now, this is interesting. At the beginning of Luke 9, we see that James and John received power and authority to perform great signs and wonders of the kingdom. But now, James and John want to use that power to kill the Samaritans who don't want Jesus coming into one of their villages. So if you put the pieces together, it wouldn't, shouldn't surprise us that there is this desire to destroy a Samaritan village and that it comes from James and John. Do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave James and John? Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, we read that Jesus nicknamed James and John Boanerges, the sons of thunder. Now, why did he give them that nickname? James and John were probably pretty fiery guys. There's a reason, interestingly, that when you get to Acts chapter 12 and uh, uh, there's a persecution against the uh, apostles there, uh, they just put Peter in prison, but they put James to death. That's what Herod does. Jesus called them Boanerges, the sons of thunder. They were probably pretty fiery guys, and Jesus, in kind of a humorous sort of way, almost nicknames them. The sons of thunder. And we see that temperament coming out here in verse 54. And what's Jesus' response? Verses 55 and 56, he rebukes them. And they just go to another village. Now, rebuke is a strong word in our English language. But it's not as if Jesus is responding to their fieriness with his own type of fiery, fiery rebuke. It's more along the lines of, as I read this, it's, guys... Now is not the time to be the sons of thunder. You're not going to use the power that I gave you to judge and destroy a village. That's not why Jesus performed signs. He didn't perform great wonders as a way of calling down judgment on people. He performed the signs to help people, to confirm his message, to confirm that he's a long-awaited king, and to show them Here's a foretaste of everlasting life with me and your healing. Following after Jesus means that we accept him for who he is and not who we want him to be. The Samaritans rejected Jesus because he didn't fit their conceptions of the Messiah. And so they rejected the very one they were waiting for. If we want to follow after Jesus, we must be sure that it is actually Jesus we are following. We may have lots of ideas about who Jesus is, but do those ideas line up with Jesus as he's presented here in the Gospels? Can we accept the Jesus who calls us to complete self-denial? Can we deal with a Jesus who forgives the least deserving can we deal with a Jesus who talks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible? Can we deal with a Jesus who actually does have something to say about illicit sexual conduct? Can we deal with a Jesus who's not impressed with our accomplishments and all the things we think we're going to do for him? Can we accept a Jesus who's far more concerned that we learn to love one another? Can we deal with the Jesus who is most patient, most loving, and most kind to repentant sinners? And yet for those who persist in unrepentance, he's the scariest being in the world. Can we deal with that Jesus? That's who he is. 
That's just a snippet of who he is. Brothers and sisters, bury yourselves in the Gospels. Take your personal conceptions about Jesus and test them by Scripture. Wrestle with Jesus as he's described in the Gospels. Because that's the way we come to know the real Jesus and not the Jesus that our sinful hearts want to project. Second, verses 57 and 58. Following Jesus with resolute purpose means we don't feel at home in this world. We don't feel at home in this world. This person, whoever it was, in verse 57 He is eager to follow Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And he comes up and he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds in verse 58 and says, okay, if you want to follow me, here's the reality. I'm homeless. Foxes and birds have places to sleep. They have places to go. But I don't have a place to sleep. I have nowhere to lay my head. If you really want to follow me into Jerusalem, be ready to be constantly on the move and deprived of a permanent home. That's what he says to this person who wants to follow him. Jesus is not going into Jerusalem to build a palace that he can rest in for the rest of his days. No, he is resolutely purposed to go and to die for his people. So if you want to follow me, he says, be ready As the Hebrew writer puts it, be ready to wander about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Now look, Jesus is not here calling every Christian to sell their property and live uh, the rest of their lives as nomads who just wander around the world in poverty. That's not what he's saying here. He may be saying that for some people. But the point is, is if you want to follow Jesus with resolute purpose... Be ready to not feel at home in this world. And if you do feel perfectly at home in this world, if you do feel perfectly content, you're not actually following Jesus. Christians, those who have been renewed by the Holy Spirit, have this sense that they can never really settle down here for their entire lives. Because they're pressing on to something that transcends this life. My wife and I recently watched uh, the British uh, television series, All Creatures Great and Small. Some of you may have watched that. And uh, it's great. Great show. And uh, in one of the episodes of this last season, there was a scene where two of the main characters, they're a man and a woman, and they're on the road to falling in love. But these two characters, they have a bit of a falling out because the man realizes that the woman, she's never going to leave her farm. This is the land, right? This is where I am. I'm never leaving the land, no matter what. Farming is who I am. I'm never leaving. So much of her life and existence is bound up with her farm, and she's not leaving it no matter what. This land means something. We have to be tied to it, and I'm not leaving it. And it's a fictional character, so I get to criticize this person. And I thought to myself, oh, you have missed it. Life is so short. This world is nobody's home, and you are far too attached to your little piece of land. Do we have a sense of not feeling at home in this world? 
If you do, good. That's supposed to be there. Jesus was not at home in this world either. And those who follow him are not at home. Third, verses 59 and 60. Following Jesus with resolute purpose means we obey him when he tells us to do something. We obey him when he tells us to do something. In verse 59, Jesus looks at a man in the crowd and says, looks at him, I don't know if he points or not, but he looks at a man in the crowd, he says, follow me. Now, earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke had pointed out that Peter, James, and John, they left everything on the seashore. They left their entire business as fishermen. They left it all when Jesus called them. And later on, Luke then tells us about his call of Matthew or Levi. Jesus said to him, follow me. And immediately he left the tax booth where he was working. He left everything and followed Jesus, just left it sitting there. And here in verse 59, however, Jesus says to this man, follow me. But this man says, ah, Lord, first I got, let me go and bury my father. Now, this is a difficult phrase. Some people have understood this phrase, bury my father, to mean, Lord, first let me go take care of my aging parent until they die, and then I'll come follow you, right? I've got to follow the fifth commandment after all. I've got to go home and honor my father and take care of them, and so I can't follow you because I've got another obligation. That's probably not what's going on here. After all, taking care care of aging parents was it's not just that it was a commanded it was something that jesus commanded one of his closest apostles to do when jesus is on the cross and he looks at john standing by mary his mother and he says to mary behold your son he's not talking about look at me on the cross he's saying look at john this is your son now behold your son and he looks at john and says john behold your mother And from that time on, the text tells us, John took Mary into his own home. So Jesus is not telling us to neglect the care of our parents. Now, even if that was what Jesus meant here, he should have obeyed. But we ought not think that Jesus is compelling this man to neglect his parents. Rather, it appears that this phrase, bury my father, refers to burial customs that were then uh, prominent in first century Judaism in which the process of burying one who had already died took up to a year. You would bury the body in a tomb, and then once the skin had rotted off, you would put the body in a bone box or an ossuary, and then you would rebury the person. There was a number of steps to burying someone that could take up to a year, and so this man is telling Jesus that he can't obey because he needs to go back home and finish the burial process of his father. And what does Jesus say to that? Verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, let those who are spiritually dead already take care of the burial of your father. But as for you, you personally, I've got something in mind for you. You go and proclaim the kingdom. You see, this man's problem ultimately, is that he was looking for a convenient excuse to not have to obey Jesus. He was looking for a convenient excuse to not have to obey Jesus. Jesus, you know, I'm supposed to honor my parents, and that must mean that 
you know, I got to take care of all these burial customs. And so let me do that and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, you go and proclaim the kingdom. We're very good at finding excuses to not obey Jesus, aren't we? I mean, at least I am. Those who follow Jesus with resolute purpose obey him without qualification when he tells them to do something. Lord, I can't show hospitality to this person who has showed up asking for help. I've got so much stuff going on that now is just not a good time for me to welcome the stranger. I'll never forget a conversation with a good pastor friend of mine who said, you know what, hospitality is inconvenient and we're commanded to do it anyways. Lord, I know you said that whatever causes me to sin, I need to get rid of, but I just can't get rid of this because it's so important in my life and I'm going to be missing out on something if I don't get, if I, unless I, I will be missing out on something if I get rid of this. I can't do it. I can't function without this. Lord, I know you've told me to think and act in a particular way, but I just can't because that's not who I am. And all of those excuses that we give, Jesus says, leave it and follow me. Leave behind whatever is keeping you from following me, no matter what it involves. And then fourthly and finally, verses 61 and 62. Following Jesus with resolute purpose means, I'm not looking back. I'm not looking back. In verse 61, another man comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, come on. Now, surely Jesus will let this man at least go tell his family that he's about to leave them. But what do we find in verse 62? Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus respond in this way? This seems harsh. And almost wrong. I I can't even say goodbye to those that I love before I follow you. Won't mama think something is wrong if I'm not home for dinner? Now, as harsh as this sounds to us, Jesus is speaking to this man. And Jesus knew this man's heart deeply. And he knows this man's heart well enough to know that in some way, This man's family was a hindrance to him following Jesus. And for whatever reason, what Jesus says here is exactly what this man needed to hear. If you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you can't see where you're going and you'll make a complete mess of the field. So too, this man was tempted to be constantly looking back to the life he was leaving while trying to follow Jesus at the same time. And Jesus says, no, you must look forward with resolute purpose and not back at what you've left behind. Is there anything you are keeping back from Jesus because you're afraid of causing a rift in your family? 
Do you think you can have one foot in heaven and one foot in the world? Here's the deal. If you set out to follow Christ only half-heartedly, you're going to make a mess of it. Just like the field when you're trying to plow and not looking. You make a mess of the field. If you set out to follow Christ half-heartedly, constantly looking back to the world, you will make an absolute mess of the Christian life. You'll actually do more harm than if you had never followed Jesus Christ in the first place. That's why Jesus tells us that it's better to sit down and count the cost. For if you start following him and then turn back, it would have been better if you never started following him in the first place. When we follow Jesus, we are, we are setting our face with resolute purpose, and we are following him and him only, no matter what comes. Now, following Jesus Christ in the way that, that this passage presents, it sounds very sad and very hard. And in one sense, it absolutely is. But in another sense... It's the only path to true joy in this life. Remember Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes, one place, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus goes to Jerusalem homeless and rejected, and yet he is a resolute king, and he endures the cross for us because of the joy that he knows is coming. Go read through the crucifixion accounts and think about this is God standing here taking all of these... uh, abuses and all of these beatings from these people and he's open not opening his mouth he has resolute purpose he is completely purposed to accomplish the salvation of his people and he does it because of the joy he knows is coming the joy of having his people with him forever he's a resolute king who endures the cross Yes, following Jesus means we must leave everything behind and and we must accept that here we have no lasting city, but our king has opened up the way for us into the presence of God and we run this endurance race because it's not a sprint. We run this endurance race with joy as we resolutely set our faces upon Jesus Christ. Let me just say this and then we're done. Let us resolve that no matter what, I am going to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what sins I've committed. It doesn't matter what I'm leaving behind. It doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter if the devil is sitting there in my head and telling me that Jesus won't accept me. It doesn't matter. I am going to Jesus Christ, and nobody, nothing, is going to stop me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the forerunner, who has gone on our behalf into the most holy place so that we can come and enter in. We pray that we would set our own faces upon him, 
and that we would run with endurance this race. We thank you for your promises that you will give us the grace to run this race. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.